there's a special branch of study of India called Indology. Its roots are very dark. Uh, they were looking for racial, to racially classify human beings. It rose out of a very dark chapter in European intellectual history. And the Hindus uh, are somewhere between a race and um, probably some kind of primitive infants that need intellectual oversight. Having said that, uh, speaking about the Ramayana is especially difficult because the Mahabharata is a very, very, very smart book. You try to mess with the Mahabharata, psh, you get slapped. <laughs> page three will slap you before you finish page one. Uh, but the Ramayana is so open-hearted so compassionate, so universal. Translate that into academia, troll time, <laughs> right? So academics have been connecting non-existent dots with their boogers and have been drawing out the, the most inane political arguments, you know. As in, in any hero story, there's got to be a monster, right? Oh, the mo between the monsters and the heroes, there's a racial conflict, clearly. You know, given that kind of an academic setting, I don't want to make myself dirty. You know, there are enough ugly trolls. Every day they tweet on the Ramayana. You just go look. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag, I'm an ugly troll. Rama did something wrong. Of course there are many Ramayanas, and of course there are many points of view, and of course the crazy right-wing people are acting up. So it's endless. It's endless. People with no life end up there. <laughs> but, but... What my students helped me see was through my own academic cynicism, you know, and intellectual snobbery. I mean, the people that tweet on Ramayana, I mean, if they said hello to me, I would not even hear it. I would just walk away. <laughs> uh, so, There's a, I don't want to take any names, but there is an article on JSTOR called Ramayana and Political Imagination. Whatever. <laughs> oh, whatever. Thank God for Olio. I can come out and say this. In, within academia, of course, I have to keep my mouth shut and, and, and just pretend I'm a good kid. Uh, so, so what I learned was that there is something about humanity. There's a way in which we are all alike. And there's a way in which we can actually talk to each other without the Trump-Hillary categories. You know what I mean? Are these the only two people in the, our hope? We're screwed. But we're not, because... I, I, when I was teaching this, I was, of course, depressed. And, um, and, and with my students, I was able to see how beautifully the Ramayana speaks for itself, allows us to 
identify themes of humanity, love, uh, ethical conflicts, you know? God forbid that something should be complicated, problematized ethically, and we have to think about it. You know, uh, so uh, these are the things. Uh, so Mahabharata is a very old text. It's a very near text. It's a it's a it's an Eastern text. It's a Western text. Uh, we have a lot uh, to uh, unpack today. Oh dear. So let me first begin by saying it's a hero story. What do we mean by a hero? Uh, Nietzsche tells us uh, in a book called uh, Birth of Tragedy, he tells us that uh, a, a king called King Midas once caught hold of a creature called Silenus. It's half horse, half goat, half man. Nietzsche himself is a little fuzzy about it. He catches hold of Silenus, and he's and he demands wisdom from Silenus. And Silenus says, why do you restrain me, you wretched creature of an ephemeral race? The word ephemeral comes from the Greek word creature of a day. You mortals who are born and die in a day, what wisdom do you want me to give you Better it was for you not to be, meaning not to have been born, but having been born, the next best thing is for you to die. This is the polar opposite of any fairy tale you've ever wanted to hear. So uh, this is called tragic wisdom. It is the opposite of utopian wisdom. It is utopias and fairy tales are narratives where everything ends up happily ever after. In the case of Utopia, it will be the princess who has emancipated herself from the seven dwarfs and has married the prince. In the case of Cinderella, it's she marries that foot fetishist prince who's running around with a, with a shoe all over the king. But whatever, they lived happily ever after. We know there is no such a thing. And Silenus is saying, this is tragic wisdom. Can you handle it? And all great epics and works of art and the hero story are about confronting that wisdom, not buying into the fairy tale and saying, even if it is not happily ever after, let me be good, meaning ethical, and let me be the best I can be. That is what the hero means. Um, Today we have humanities. In olden days we had these narratives that told us about what the values were. The hero values are values of being ethical, being strong, accomplish things, not be depressed, not be afraid of death, uh, conquer the monster, don't go back and sleep with your mother, don't try to crawl back into the womb, don't buy a, you know, a big cup of Dunkin' Donuts with a thick nipple-like straw and, <laughs> and you know, uh, just go forward. 
just just uh, go far from your mother and and uh, overcome the feminine uh, the feminine monster that the mother represents as the forbidden object of pleasure and marry a virgin, meaning not mummy. <laughs> so the hero story always consists of a boy being sent away from home, from the comfort of the womb, from the comfort of the hearth on an ordeal. The hero faces death. The hero slays a monster with risk to life and with divine help. So the hero represents that aspect of humanity that strives to transcend itself, right? Uh, its limitations. The monster is often female because what the boy is really confronting with psychoanalytically is the mother who is monstrous in the sense that she represents extinction, if you know, uh, and she also represents that Silena's wisdom better for you not to have been born and float in that pleasurable ocean of the amniotic sac. The hero parades over that conflict and comes to terms with uh, his masculinity or his individuality, uh, marries a virgin from a foreign land, uh, succeeds the father, and starts a new cycle. And he will teach his son to go away from home and, uh, and uh, conquer his fears and be a hero again. So the hero story is a pedagogical story. It's a course in humanities. It's a course in psychoanalysis. If things go wrong, as they will, the therapist will lead you through these steps, and uh, you succeed your father. Now, the anti-hero is someone who's given away at birth. This is Oedipus, right? Uh, he's adopted and raised at home. Somebody else raises him as a, as a kid. He confronts the Sphinx with his own wit. Modernity is an Oedipal culture because we think we can fly by the seat of our pants and we all know what's right, what's wrong, what we should do, what we shouldn't do, what's good, what's bad. I'm sorry, but if you're so freaking smart, you should hesitate before you say like or dislike on Facebook. <laughs> Have you even thought about it? You, there is a move, you know, where you both like and scroll at the same time. <laughs> That's how unthinking we have become. <laughs> the Sphinx is a female, but Oedipus just solves a riddle. There is no risk to his life. He's not confronting death, nothing. And he returns home to his mother, Jocasta, uh, marries her, and uh, before he marries her, he kills the father, albeit unwittingly. So I want you to see that the most important story of our contemporary psyche, which is the Oedipus story, is actually the story of the anti-hero. And Freud is correct in this because we are born that way, and proper pedagogy, which is in the form of the hero story, is supposed to cultivate in us an education, uh, especially an edu ethical education, confront both our death 
and our pull to our desire by our desires. So you can't just do whatever you desire. That leads you inexorably in the anti-heroic path of Oedipus. But if you take the heroic path, uh, you uh, you overcome the mortal condition in the sense that at least you integrate yourself into a cycle. In this way, Rama is political because in this way he represents an ideal citizen. That each one of us, a society of Oedipuses will not last long. So here you see the hero, Apollo wrestling with the snake python. Uh, there you see uh, Theseus slaying the minotaur in the labyrinth. Uh, here you see Perseus who has decapitated Medusa. And compared to these images of risking your life with a weapon in your hand, blood, gore, uh, you look at Oedipus over there. It's a painting, 19th century, 20th century, Dominic Angre, neoclassicism. And uh, look at Oedipus. You, might, you know, he could as well be holding a cigarette. <laughs> it's like he's getting a manicure or a pedicure. He's just standing there, and there's the Sphinx. So this is the modern condition where we have not overcome our fears, but we have actually even forgotten what it is that threatens us. It's no longer forgetting what you fear. It's oblivion. Because when you forget something, you think, ah, I forgot something. But we don't even think that we have anything to fear. We do not see that we are hurtling into uh, the vortex of time and be finished off. We do not appreciate the tragic wisdom of Silenus. That's because we are an Oedipal culture. Um, in the story of the hero, there is one scene where the hero marrying the virgin is intricately linked to fertility. So at the heart of the hero's myth is also the symbol of fertility. Or the, and here there are many uh, 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 images of the coming up of the virgin from a mound, from the earth. So these are fertility rituals. Uh, the hero is the man there who's holding something like an ax, some implement that is meant for agriculture. And out of the ground, uh, a female figure rises up. It's a kind of an epanodos. Uh, uh, coming up of the virgin. So uh, the hero will slay the monster, get rid of mummy issues in doing so, confront them, and he will marry a virgin. Uh, something like this is also seen in the Ramayana. Uh, Rama is, uh, you know, whenever you say Indian art, this is what you imagine it to be. And it's not my favorite style of 
painting, uh, but you see there is uh, a mound there, and behind the mound is a female monster that, um, this is Rama with the bow arrow aimed at a female uh, monster. Uh, on the way of his initiation, Rama is sent away on a, to fight a female demon. And uh, as after he has slain the female demon, uh, he enters an hermitage in which uh, either from the earth or inhabiting that hermitage uh, is a woman. Specifically, she has been cursed to become invisible because of her, well, she flirted with a handsome god long ago, and her husband turns at her, Gautama, and says, you know, cheating is bad. <laughs> so you will be here uh, until Rama enters this place. And when Rama enters this place, his mentor, his teacher, uh, points her out. But the whole story of her coming up is to mark the fact that she's not the virgin. Rama is on his way to meet the virgin whom he will marry. Uh, so uh, Rama is uh, a just king, but in ancient texts, when you read about the story of a king, it does not mean you're reading the story of Trump. <laughs> it just means uh, the embodiment of that which is ideal. The author who composed the Ramayana is in the text itself. So like the Mahabharata, the author is present in the text, is also a character. His name is Valmiki. He composes the Ramayana. But the first thing he asks, the first thing, this is how the Ramayana starts, is he asks the creator, God's messenger, who is there in this world who is of good nature, powerful, righteous, alert in action, truthful in speech, firm in resolve, exemplary in conduct, devoted to the welfare of all beings, learned, skillful, with a pleasant presence, self-controlled, with anger overcome, resplendent and free from jealousy. Don't you wish this was being taught in humanities? How far we have gone, how low have we sunk? Huh? Pretty low. So at least the epic is asking, who is an ideal person? Can we at least have like a benchmark for ideal? We'll probably like not reach it. We'll probably not even get off our asses. But if somebody asked us, what is the ideal, we'll just like sort of point. <laughs> and that's the minimum a bachelor's in a university is supposed to give us. This is the minimum. Instead, we get courses in anthropology. Vishnu is an avatar of Rama. I'll do the, what, what avatar means in a second. But simply put, 
Vishnu has four arms, which is not possible for a human being to have. Uh, so if Rama is an embodiment of the divine, uh, he, he's still human, or at least behaves as a human, and therefore he has only two arms. Just, I'm sorry to simplify to this point, but you know these stories are meant to be simple and easy to grasp. Therefore, Rama does not really know throughout the book that he's an avatar of Vishnu, which is essential to the plot of the book. How many, many, many PhD dissertations have I read from Chicago and Columbia saying, the divinity of Rama must have been added later. Because for the most part, he's behaving like a human, and then, you know, in the beginning and the end, there is this business of, yeah? You see why I don't want to get into the <laughs> Ramayana? It's really troll territory. I mean, I mean, how dumb can you be to write a dissertation like this? Yes, yet they are written. I, there are even books, books like the theologization of Rama. For political purposes, I suppose. So the, I, remember, I promised you the background on Hindu theology once in one flash. The Hindus believe in something called Brahman, which is like it. It's like the force. Remember the force from Star Trek? It is. It is the ground zero, and it is represented by Vishnu. So. Good and bad, Vishnu is sort of, you know, detached. And uh, but the guy that actually gets his hands dirty is Brahma, and he creates the world. Not to confuse Brahman with Brahma, Brahma creates the phenomenal world, meaning the world of phenomena that is perceptible to the senses and that exists in time and space. Uh, and uh, Vishnu uh, will not either incarnate himself just into the phenomenal easily, uh, nor will he participate in creation. He will just authorize Brahma with, his, with the power of the force and say, you go ahead and create the world. Where does the avatar descend to. It descends into the text. Right? So out, out of the phenomenal world, there is a text. Somewhere between Brahman and us is the text, where intellectually we grasp the principles that makes this shebang happen. And into that text, the god descends. Right? So if anybody says, where's Rama? Rama is in the Ramayana. Go read. Where, are, where is Athena? She's in Homer's Iliad. You read it with Shraddha, meaning piety, and you will see her. I promise. I promise. So, so while we go we rise our, raise ourselves up from the human condition. The God descends from the divine condition, and it happens in the text. The text, you ca I cannot stress to you how important textuality is to Hindus. 
And when you read that, freed from everyday life, you experience a kind of joyfulness. Because the textual realm is more free, more imaginative, more illuminated with ideas, more shot through with the teaching of ethics. You see? The perfect world always exists in the text. And Vishnu will not, like, you know, walk on the streets of Times Square or Union Square, getting himself dirty. Into the minds of the greatest poets in poetic creation, the god appears. Guess what? Ramayana is fully aware of this. So Rama means bliss. Hey, that's pretty interesting. Naming a character, jouissance, bliss. Um, I have in the back of my mind, I know this is New York, I cannot underestimate any one of you. So I'm sure at least some of you have read Lacan. He's the greatest descendant and interpreter of Freud. And jouissance is a term from Lacan. But in the case of Lacan, it is transgression that gives me that joy. You know, the French have a whole tradition of Marquis de Sade and so on. Uh, <laughs> but in this case, it is precisely sacrificing yourself to dharma or to ethics that gives you that pleasure. Right? So if I have that chocolate in the middle of the night, the big bar from Trader Joe's, that will give me pleasure. But if I think to myself that is bad and I'm better than that, I'm a hero, and read a book, any book, that gives me bliss. It is an intense pleasure. It's not even on the scale of pleasure. Okay? Yeah. So don't mix them up. Lovers cannot give you bliss. They can only give you pleasure. If you want bliss, you have to read a book. Look at this. Generations of women and mothers and grandmothers reading to their sons and daughters. This is how education happened and happens in India to this day. It's a very literate culture. That's why when Hindu boys come into the university and they look around and they're like, yeah, something's wrong here. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it, okay, so I've taken a course in cultural anthropology. I've taken a course in political theory. What should I do? What ought I do? What ought I do? Who am I? How does this make any sense? Can I go back to Silenus and say to Silenus, you know, you should just read the New York Times. Silenus is going to say you moron. Right? So 
I want you to understand that Ramayana is a comprehensive course in pedagogy and humanities, not because I want everybody here to go read, which would be good if you read it, but the important thing is at least to, to, to clarify to ourselves what the problem with humanities itself is, right? And if nothing, Ramayana will at least tell you, you should go ask your professor, what is ideal for me to know? What is, what is ethically good? What is the true? What is the good? What is the beautiful? Okay, now very quickly, the story itself, contents-wise, the narration goes very quickly. Uh, Rama kills the female demon, and then uh, there is a contest in which Rama lifts the bow of Shiva. Shiva is the god of destruction. This is obviously a fertility scenario, people. The god of destruction has to be kept at bay. He breaks the bow. He was only supposed to string it uh, and twang it, but after he strings it, as he twangs it or pulls the, uh, the bowstring, the bow breaks. Uh, so uh, Sita is, of course, only too happy to marry Rama, and um, they have a happy marriage for the time being. Immediately after this, Rama the prince is exiled. His father is too coddling to play the role of the hero's father. It's his stepmother who insists that he go away into exile. Rama goes into exile with his brother, Lakshmana. While in the forest, a demon called Ravana, uh, you see, people, use a conditioner. Use a conditioner. <laughs> There's the demon Ravana carrying away poor Sita, and as he carries her away, a bird called Jatayu comes to rescue Sita, but Ravana cruelly cuts off the wings of the bird and carries away Sita to a place called Lanka. Rama will befriend a, a group of semi-divine beings that were born to assist him in this avatar. Uh, these are uh, monkey kings and their subjects. And so, guess what? Dissertations about how the monkeys could have been another race of people that were subjugated, South Indians, North Indians, I'm sorry, but there is no culture that cannot tell the difference between monkeys and human beings. 19th century racist European scholars may have gotten confused, but nobody else in the world ever confuses between people and monkeys or cats and dogs, you know? Rama builds uh, a bridge because Lanka is on the other side of the ocean. It doesn't matter which ocean. And uh, look at all the monkeys. They're very strong. They, they bring so much joy to the text. You know, They are beautiful, mischievous, naughty, good-hearted, helpful. Um, one of them is called Yogurt Face, <laughs> Dadi Mukha. How cute is that? 
and, <laughs> and Rama finally seizes La upon Lanka and brings down Lanka. Okay. I prefer these kinds of visual representations because I don't want it to be that sort of high art thing. I like high art, but illustration helps, uh, especially when uh, you know you're teaching little kids. After the war, uh, there is a horrific scene where Rama says, if I took Sita back, what will people say? How's that going to look? She was taken by a very lustful demon and she lived in his uh, on his property. <laughs> so I do not want at any time to appear as if my choices are based on desire rather than what is expected of me as a good king. That there is an ethical obligation here that I have to perform. So he tells Sita, I freed you, uh, now you can go where you wish to go. But taking you back is, uh, is going to disturb the kingdom itself, right? Now, until recently, I used to think this is a bit excessive. But maybe Trump should read this story. Maybe there's more to life than grabbing. You know? So Sita says, ha, I love Rama so much, I don't want to go anywhere. And she says, build a fire. I will jump in the fire and... Uh, Everybody is, look at the poor monkey. One monkey is like all this, you know, it's holding on to Rama's foot saying, please stop this, this is horrific. And for us too, who are reading the story, this is quite anticlimactic. This is like, no, you know, this is Sita for whom you fought this war. And Rama, just before he fought the war, was running in the forest saying, Sita, Sita, I can't live without you. And then he got her and this is the scene. So it's a little. So Sita enters the fire, and immediately the fire cools, and all the gods gather in the sky and say, Rama, you're Vishnu, and this Sita is your beloved, blah, blah. So the, the, the avatar layer is pierced in this scene. It's quite important. But look at Sita. Uh, then Rama goes back to his kingdom, and you would think, happily ever after. But that Ramayana always frustrates you there. It's never happily ever after. So when, uh, Rama, when Sita goes back and they go to the kingdom, some idiot on the street says, is beating up his wife saying, you're a slut. And she says, and then he says, do you think I'm going to put up with your sluttiness like Rama put up with Sita? And the news reaches Rama's ear. And Rama knows that if Sita remained in the kingdom, she will be blamed. And he will be blamed as a king. So he sends her away. It's another parting. This is what's what makes Ramayana so 
heavy and beautiful. It's never just a simple ending. So, and you thought, okay, this is too much already. So uh, she goes to the author's house. And she has two sons from Rama. They're Rama's sons. And they are taught the Ramayana by the author. The sons are learning the story of the father from the poet. And they go to Rama's court. And the whole poem that you have so far heard, you are third person to the father hearing the story of his own life from his sons. This is pure literary genius. So now you know, it's the pedagogic therapeutic conversation of the hero between the father and the son, where the father is saying, thou shalt not, meaning you shall not go in the, wherever your desire takes you, you should go risk your life and be great fulfill your destiny, which is your ethical destiny, not your sensuous destiny, because the work of desire is death. Now, feminists have come up and said, Rama didn't treat Sita right. And I kind of bought this argument, because like you know, Indian boys grow up loving their mothers. Their mothers play like this huge role in their lives. And I just thought, what would happen if daddy sent mommy away? I wouldn't like it. So I kind of thought that. But lo and behold, I was at a conference. And this guy was, this scholar was telling me how bad Rama is. And he's on his third marriage. I didn't know what to say. Because when Rama sends Sita away, he's monogamous forever. He does not take up other people or so. I don't mind if somebody who's married to me gives me up, but provided they stay celibate. <laughs> That's all one ever wants in a relationship, right? So, so then I began to think that Sita is actually representing the eternal feminine, and Rama could never catch up with her. She represented the flow of the cosmos, you know? And uh, she's the teacher of desire and dharma. On the one hand, she's teaching dharma to Rama, and she's teaching the, the, the perils of adharma to Ravana, the monster. And the difference between a, a monster and a god is ethics, isn't it? So only fathers and sons remain in the story. After this, Rama says, OK, I want you back, Sita, after all. And Sita says, no. And 
she calls out to her mother. She, she was born in a furrow. She has come up from the ground. That's her background story. At this point, she says, mother, and the earth opens, and she goes into the chasm. The earth closes. Rama falls on his face and hits his fists on the ground and says, I will burn down the world for my Sita. Sita is gone. She was never yours, Rama. And your whole story was to demonstrate that. What is yours, on the other hand, is the joy that comes from being a hero and being ethical. Your joy is to be the model for ethics. Your joy is not Sita. She's gone. So remember the question, who in this world is the ideal person? Uh, just after Valmiki asks that question, he goes to the river to bathe. And while he's bathing in the river, uh, a hunt, he sees two cranes dancing. These are cranes, a male and a female. And suddenly, an arrow comes and kills the male. And the female bird is lamenting piteously. And Valmiki sees this and he curses the hunter, saying, you will wander forever without any peace. But when the grief of Valmiki comes out, it, is, it comes out in the very meter in which the Ramayana is composed. Shoka is the Sanskrit word for grief, becomes shloka, which means verse. So Ramayana is the story of transmuting the, the grief that is inherent in time, in human life, in death, in separation, in loss, aging. Don't forget, aging. <laughs> the, the sorrow, you know, every day there's a new sorrow. I'm like, I, I used to have hair there. I never used to have hair there. <laughs> you know? I'm sorry. Is that my ass or a tea bag? <laughs> so so, uh, so the, the poetic joy transforms and gives us, we are able to laugh and be joyful because we now intellectually see that that is the work of time. Okay, so the killing of the cranes becomes the frame narrative. So in that frame narrative, Valmiki will go and write the story, but we don't hear about that story except through the mouths of the sons to the father. So um, the, the Ramayana is this whole universe of playing with uh, time, playing with texts, playing with divinity, but its emphasis is that you are an ethical hero, and it's your pedagogy that is at stake. Done, I think. Oh, translations. Uh, that is a very simple and easily accessible retelling of the Ramayana on the third. This is a concise Ramayana, which is divided into 365 chapters, which is what I used to teach. You can read one chapter a day. It's a page and a half. It's just, um, and this is the shebang. This is the main thing with the Sanskrit and stuff. There are also like a 10 volume or whatever edition of the 
of the translation done by um, Princeton University, I think, press or so. I read the introductions, and the scholars are quite insane. <laughs> so, so they may have translated cleverly or more accurately, but believe me, you know, you're not going to lose much by, you know, reading an extra verse. Yeah, so now we are going to have uh, two performances. One is classical. It is in the tradi tradition of classical temple music, uh, devotional music, if you will, where Rama is worshipped as the avatar of a god, an i.e. god. Uh, and uh, this also tells the story of Ramayana in a particular way. Very Indian, very traditional, very, very uh, beautiful. For those of you who wonder about this, uh, Indian songs and Indian music uses half notes and so on, so just don't get frightened. <laughs> and just take it. It's very beautiful. And then we're going to, this is by Mahita Bandlamudi, and then we are going to have Jonathan Clemente, who composed while he was taking the course. He was inspired, like Valmiki was inspired. And he composed the song and its music, and he's going to perform that uh, to to show us that if we only get, if we only step out of the what academia has become, maybe there is hope for humanity, but only outside the university. Thank you. So in this kriti, there are different dragams, or melodies, and each pertains to um, different segments of the story. Um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy. So, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
सरोज कोमल रुचु राम भजे श्यामल Sai ke tum mai ge sai 
So, yeah, I, uh, I was supposed to write an essay. <laughs> Beginning of all great stories. Uh, I was supposed to write an essay for uh, Professor Adlery's class, and uh, I was having a tough time, like, sitting down without a guitar. I just wanted to play guitar. And um, I had this great tune that I was, like, really enjoying playing. <laughs> And uh, I was doing a new picking pattern, so it was really exciting. Um, and I just started, you know, making a song for the Ramayana, because, you know, why not? <laughs> um, at first, I was like, oh, maybe I should hand this in instead of an essay. And I was like, you know what? I like him too much. I'm going to go all out, write the whole essay, too. <laughs> why not? Um, but he gave me a wonderful reply. He really appreciated it, and uh, he wanted me to play it for the class. And that was really heartwarming. So. 
I was happy to play it tonight as well. Um, but the story of the Ramayana is, is in the song. It starts as a poet. Um, I'm the poet. Receiving this information to spit it back at you guys. And um, it's all through this scene of the crane. So I, I called it the, the crane's cry. But, and my name is Jonathan Clementi also. With story told And I had hoped I could Watch two cranes grow old But a man killed the one Whose lover cried And I cursed at the man Who took its life How dare you split love So pure and bright And Brahma told me to write this song To tell of a man who could do wrong But chose to do right all inside Rama is that which brings delight He is Vishnu, he is light There once was a king who ruled in peace He wanted a son that would succeed And he spoke to his aides and did horse right The gods gave a son with holy might He was Vishnu, he was light And as time passed by, Rama grew A perfect prince to all who knew But fate had a twist that seemed not fair A wish to the king, a change of air Sent Rama away to woods elsewhere The king cried to watch his son leave there But Rama found love in the dark A girl of the earth that lit his spark And wrapped in her arms the world felt so right And Sita was kind, she was fair And no other girl anywhere could match with her beauty He knew this well He knew this well And then came the demon of unknown He flew far away with young Sita The prince cried until his eyes were red I will not rest until you're dead I'll get back my love and take your head The journey began to find his girl Far to the south, a different world With magic and monkeys, small and tall Rama would learn and meet them all 
And no obstacle could make him fall They fought over demons to Ravana And in the end at safe seats I brought her back home and became king Rama is great, always sing His blows have such strength, his words leave a sting came round Lucita untrue as Dharma denies Rama must too he sent her away but quite unaware she would give birth to Rama's heirs Lava and Kush her son so fair And Sita was kind, she was fair And no other girl anywhere could match with her beauty He knew this well He knew this well it all started with the cranes cry, losing love and grief. I had to share the echo, being in the wind. It all started with the cranes cry, losing love and grief. I had to share the echo, being in the wind. It was being in the wind. It all started with the cranes cry, losing love and grief. I had a shed a beating in the wind. It's still beating in the wind. Mm Got a mic. Hello. Um, when was the Ramayana written?
clear, it's clearly a written composition, which imitates orality, because Rama is listening to it. We do not know the exact dates. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go to whether this war actually happened, whether there are demons with ten heads, whether monkeys can talk. I just... I just don't want to go there. <laughs> because that's the whole point. What Jonathan, between Mahita and Jonathan, what came across is that, is that humanity, which is the story, which is the story of us all, you know? And when we historicize it and reduce it to cultures and put them in neat categories and boxes, we become confused because we have created a honeycomb around ourselves and we cannot get out. And, it, and the reason why I, I, I do not want to say a date is because it is conjecture. And especially in ancient India, every date is contingent on another date. <laughs> so you only have relative chronologies. And until recently, as I told you, they're still arguing whether the original Ramayana was divinized or not. Which was so. So you see the amount of uh, ink spilt on it. It's not worth it. And Jonathan was able to give you the story so easily. And. What Ramayana is conveying to us is all said and done and the work of time having passed. That which is of poetic value remains as a narrative, as a song, a piece of music, a work of art. And it is up to us to live our lives uh, like my students to, uh, to, to, to drink from that poetic stream and be nourished by it. But it's a good question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it allowed me to... Um, I think that is a great question because you answered my question, which is like this ideal and the universal that we now sort of grapple. Yeah, they've become bad words now. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's but you just answered it, so yeah. it is like a great response yeah. that. So I'm just going to pass off Thank the microphone. Hi, uh, thank you so much for the, all the wonderful presentations. Um, my question, and I think I can probably assume Jonathan learned about the story through your class. I'm just curious about how you all were introduced to the Ramayana and how your relationship with the story has changed through time and through your practice of either teaching or performing music. Mine's quick. Um, in high school, I was taught that it was a story about um, an Indian prince that had a monkey friend and he couldn't be with his wife. So when I got the opportunity to learn about it, I, I took it. So um, I learned it through him. And uh, it was a lot more complicated because we, we started out trying to read it, and he realized that people weren't reading it. So he kind of just, like, he gave us, like, a brief, like, idea of what, it, of what the story is. And that's basically what I put in the song because I just I enjoyed his summary so much. I just, like, used it. And I took elements of the class, and I put it into it. Um, for the most part, it's really just a summary. Thanks. Thank you. Um, it kind of goes a little back for me. Uh, I learned about the Ramayana when I was 
probably five. <laughs> and that too, just like basic elements, kind of what, how you learned it. And, um, but my mom started like telling me more and more about it. I read books about it. I watched TV shows, which were pretty terrible too, <laughs> that were about it, <laughs> kind of resembled, tried to resemble what actually happened. Um, but I think, I mean, as for my music, uh, I learned a lot of songs about the Ramayana. I learned a lot about Rama within the like the Kritis that I've sung throughout my life, and um, kind that's kind of how I developed a close relationship, close close relationship to Rama himself, and to the story itself. Um, I just sang more and more about it, um, and and even the the ragas they they really do justice to the story. The song that I sang, the Kriti that I sang, they. It, every, as you can probably have noticed, every stanza kind of sounded differently, right? Like the, the melody. So those, that's called the ragams, right? Different ragams. And so uh, I think, I'm pretty sure one of the stanzas talked about uh, Jatayu, the, the, the bird, right? Trying to save Sita. And in that melody, it, it was very, um, it's a very kind of a yearning melody, if that makes sense. Um, it, it was very, it's a very like depressing part of the song, um, but yeah, I, I think that I learned a lot about the Ramayana through the ragams, through the music, through my mom, um, through Professor Adluri too. I came into the class thinking, oh, I was gonna like confront him about the Agni Pariksha that happened, right? And I was like, yeah. how come Sita had to go through that? Yeah. So <laughs> guilty. <laughs> yeah, so I definitely had those kind of thoughts as well, but obviously he shut me down instantly. <laughs> but yeah, so I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Any other questions? Um, I have a question. So I have limited knowledge on Rama, but I have a question about Ravana. And I wanted to know what the symbolism is behind the capturing of Sita, really what, um, if, Let's say if that didn't happen, was there inevitably going to be another journey in which Rama would have had to go through um, that included Sita? Because, it's a follow-up question, because is Sita really, I guess, no, is, is, is the, acqu the acquiring of Sita really the hero's journey that he has to go through, or the attempt to acquire Sita? Good question. question. Good question, but in the end, the in the end, nobody belongs to anybody, and nothing belongs to us, right? Even if we love each other and we hold on to each other, death takes one of us away. So, remember the crane song. You know, it is. It's impossible for us to conceive of life as the elimination of grief. That's never gonna happen, people. It's never gonna happen. I thought it would happen after Obama was elected. <laughs> Didn't happen. Didn't happen with Obama. Didn't happen after Obama. So it is the how we poetically transmute that grief through through the that which is the beautiful, which is poetry, that which is the good, which is the ethical, and that which is true which means that which holds for all of us today, right? Somehow, Rama is a prince in India, or was, and he, he, he had a monkey friend, and he couldn't be with his girl, as he, this is a, 
somehow we all experience today what Rama must have gone through, what Sita must have gone through. And this empathy is not a lot, but I think that's humanity. This ability to, to understand other people and other people's sufferings, victories, and rejoice in it, uh, take delight in poetry, uh, it just shows that we are probably not as different as uh, we now make everything out to be. And that's the message. The message is not just the hero's journey. The message is also how the hero's journey becomes a motif in which we can understand not only ourselves, but each other. It's uh, poetry requires an ethics of empathy and respect, which I think is not very strong. It's not a big concept that you can build on it. It's not like Moses' law and written in stone. It's a delicate thing, but that's our humanity. And you know, the louder we get, the more aggressive we get, the more, more we push each other away, uh, we lose that very delicate sensibility of understanding. I mean, you know, I, I never had to like give an introduction to Indian culture before I taught the Ramayana in my class. Everybody just got it. We have one final question for the evening right here. <clears throat> um, what do you think it would take for the death of the, I think you said, Oedipal Society to come? And do you think it should die or change? You know, I have always, this is a very, very personal question for me. The, the clarion calls for utopias of, from every side are so loud, and there are so many different solutions for what will make us better as humans and society, that the very solutions are killing us. You know, the very solutions have become problematic. So I do not want to prescribe any political agenda. Back off. Back off. You know, just read it as a poem. Just let us live in that poetic, artistic, literary matrix. You know, the sunshiny world, if you will, where we respect each other and we think that everybody is, is worthy of dignity and respect. I have no I have no prescriptions for politics, but I think that you should, we should take some time off from the political and be singular, be just me, in the sense that I, I compassionately reach out to someone. And that's, that's sufficient. And if the Rama story teaches you just that much, that's sufficient. We do not need to go to Hegel and Marx and just pull out a whole blueprint for how to reconstruct society. It's a good question. It's very personal to me. And that's why I am always reading literary works and writing about literary things and not the political, because there's enough political uh, already 
too much already. It's the ability to dehease from it, the ability to pull back from it, which I think is uh, more essential for our humanity.